Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burrus. And our guests today are Chris Sopranant, he's professor of philosophy at the University of New Orleans, and Jason Brennan, the Robert J. and Elizabeth Flanagan Family Professor of Strategy, Economics, Ethics, and Public Policy at the McDonough School of Business at Georgetown University. Their new book is Injustice for All, How Financial Incentives Corrupted and Can Fix the U.S. Criminal Justice System. Welcome to Free Thoughts, gentlemen. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Are we seeing a turning point in terms of our relationship to cops and the criminal justice system right now? I, I mean, look, I, I think we're we're constantly seeing various turning points over the last, you know, however many years it's been since we saw the Rodney King video. Um, one of the most interesting things, I think, of the last couple of days is the willingness of police officers to fire on and otherwise assault citizens and members of the media when they know they're being recorded. So up until now, you would think that a lot of the things that we've seen, a lot of the bad behavior, um, they've been caught, right? That, that that no one thought that they were being recorded and they did this bad behavior. And now all of a sudden it's coming out. And, and now we see a lot of videos coming out where people, the police officers are, no, they know they're being recorded and yet they're willingly attacking citizens and members of the media. And, and this is, I think, going to become a, a problem. And so there seems to be something going on right now. I'm not sure if it's a turning point or something different, but it seems to be something significant. The, the pr- problem that we have here, too, is on one hand, it's clear because people are running around the nation smashing and burning stuff and also marching peacefully and protesting in light of police behavior that it's everyone is aware of this. Everyone's concerned about it. And so you might think that this will lead to changes in the future. But there are a couple empirical papers have been written by there's a, a political scientist at Princeton. There's a some, couple experimental papers and so on that say that. Uh, People react to the perception of lawlessness by demanding more law and order. So it's as we're giving this broadcast, we don't know. It could be it goes the other way and that if anything, cops are going to be empowered by this in the long run because uh, the reaction has been not the right kind of reaction to create social change. But we don't really know. Now, we've seen that we're recording this in the midst of the the riots and unrest uh, after the George Floyd video and, of course, all this taking place during a pandemic. Um, in general, though, do we know about numbers in terms of police behavior? I mean, I've for a long time, especially African-Americans, have complained that, that police have been violent toward them, but we didn't all have cameras in our pockets at that time for most of that time. And I've, I've, I've quipped before that one thing that we know by everyone having a camera in their pocket is that Bigfoot doesn't exist, UFOs don't exist, and cops are are pretty mean to black people, or often can be. Um, is that is that only what we're seeing? Do you think that we're just seeing a, a different kind of sampling, uh, or is or is this a sort of long run problem? I think we we don't have really good data about things like police killings and so on, and and many of the kinds of issues about violence are very difficult to measure. But what Chris and I do early on in the book, at least, is try to sample those papers as best as possible and also look at longitudinal studies where they talk about the past versus current times. I think it's – to sort of summarize those papers, it's pretty clear that the U.S. is an outlier among kind of OECD-type nations about how violent its police are. They're unusually violent compared to others. And one hypothesis that might pop into someone's head immediately is, oh, well, that's because our citizens are better armed. Uh, you know, your police officers are dealing with armed citizens, but that doesn't really explain it in part because uh, if you try to do like solve for the amount of police violence, according to gun prevalence in different areas, you don't get like much of a correlation there. So that doesn't seem to be it. Um, you see like unusually high levels of police violence, even with say subdued citizens, you know, sitting on their necks and choking them to death, that kind of thing. Um, and it's, in, insofar as there is data, it looks like it has gotten worse and it got worse starting in like the 70s, but got much worse like in the 90s and afterward. So I think we have good reason to think that like the U.S. is unusually violent, not just to black people, uh, but to white people, too. It's it's definitely worse to be a black person stopped by a cop in the U.S. than to be a white person. That's clear. But it's also worse to be a white person stopped by the cops in the United States than it is to be a person of any nationality stopped by the cops in Germany. So uh, we had some examples like in Germany, the number of bullets fired in one year uh, by the police outside of shooting ranges is lower than the number of people that were killed by Californian cops in that same year. And those are the kinds of differences we're seeing. 
I think you also need to put the data in some sort of context when it comes to crime rates in the United States as well. And so there is some data showing that, say, between 2013 and 2018, uh, black Americans are two and a half times more likely to be killed by police officers than, than white Americans. But when you look at crime rates, the crime rates are high as well. And so, you know, one of the things that Jason and I do in the book is I don't think we necessarily come across as uh, anti-police or anti-judges or anti-law enforcement, um, but rather to understand, you know, why people are making the decisions they're making, how we're responding to crime, why crime's occurring, uh, thinking about things along those lines, because it's it's not as easy to just say, well, look, you know, there are a lot of black Americans that are being abused by the police. I mean, that is true. Right. But the other side of that story is that there's more crime in black communities than white crime, or white communities, or at least certain kinds of crime, the type of crime that police generally respond to. And, and we go through all sorts of reasons is how you, you try to deescalate that. But it's, it's more complicated than, than just looking at some of those numbers. Although, quite frankly, the numbers themselves are, are quite bad and quite disturbing. How much of this, I mean, you mentioned a bit of culture, but I'm curious about, how much is driven by culture in America, both in terms of police violence, in terms of the police themselves being more violent, and in terms of the people that they're trying to interact with potentially being more violent? Because it does seem like America is, as you said, a like a uniquely violent place in um, in the Western world, and also that we tend to be fairly like vindictive in our culture as well. That Americans like to just like punish. We, we love the carceral state. We like to punish. We like to just strike back. We're seeing this right now with the rhetoric, especially from Republicans and the president over the riots of like, we just need overwhelming force. That that, that kind of approach to, I guess, call them interpersonal relationships and problems seems to be something that is, is very American. Is there, is that maybe some of what's driving this is that we just kind of culturally like the police are more likely to beat you up. And if you're if you're caught by the police, you're more likely to resist in ways that are different from, say, the way that people would resist in Europe. Yeah, I think it's a good question. But I think it's partly that the phenomenon you're talking about is the thing that needs to be explained, not completely. It's the explanation. And the reason for that is that when you look at, say, the United States in, say, the 1960s, we had a higher crime rate than other OECD type countries, but not, an, we weren't like an outlier. It was kind of like if the typical country is 100 on a scale, we're like 150, but we're like still grouped in with them. And then crime for reasons that no one quite understands. We've read all the books and there's not like a consensus view. For a variety of reasons, no one understands crime started to go up dramatically. And that led to a stronger support for having a powerful police state uh, having powerful police officers and militarizing the police and so on. And this kind of is support for incarceration and these other things be- appeared there. But then the odd thing was then starting around the 1990s, crime went down, violent crime went down, victimization rates went down dramatically. And so the U.S. start in, in, when it comes to murder, it's still an outlier. But in many measures of crime, it's actually better than many European countries. Uh, and it's gotten better. But nevertheless, even as things got better and better and better in the U.S., the culture of like ever being harsher on crime got to be worse and worse. So it's a puzzle because we were part of the group like other countries, and then we became an outlier afterwards. And it appears that the cultural phenomenon you're talking about was in the first instance, a response to the perception of higher crime and a desire to do something about it. Though now it leads to a kind of vicious cycle where even when crime is getting better, you pull Americans, they think it's getting worse and they want ever harsher punishments. Yeah. And, and to say a bit more about crime rates, too, I mean, it's we've got a very large country and it's a very diverse country. And when you start talking about national averages in terms of crime, it doesn't really tell you the whole story. Right. So the national average may be something. But when you start looking at individual cities like Detroit or St. Louis or New Orleans or Washington, D.C. or some of our more violent cities in the country, I mean, you're looking at crime rates that exceed the national average by five, six, seven, eight times. And then when you live in one of those cities, right? So, so Jason lives or at least works in Washington, D.C. I live in New Orleans. Um, I have not, you know, at least up until this point in my life, been the victim of a violent crime. But I live in a very violent city. I just don't live in violent parts of that city. So when you think about a lot of this violent crime being concentrated in certain parts of the city, it, 
really gives you a very different picture of the communities that we're looking at and what it's like to live in some of those communities. And and historically, you can't blame a lot of people in these communities for not trusting the police, given what's happened historically. So it's a, it's a complicated situation when you look at the relationship between citizens and police in this country, certain groups of citizens and police. Um, and understanding that picture is going to be important in addressing the current situation and addressing things going forward. So in your book, you discuss sort of how you guys you know, think this happened in one version, because there's a lot of people, sociologists or, or, or other social scientists who will say, you know, racism bubbled over due to centuries of, of you know, grievances or things like this. But, but you guys say it's not – it doesn't explain everything, but there's just – you have to look at the incentive structure of the criminal justice system to get some idea what, what, what is going on here. Yeah, so we early in the book we say there's like three basic hypotheses that correspond to three basic ideologies and they're they're all partially correct but not quite right. Um so if you're a progressive slash left liberal slash left wing person, you might think uh it has to do with racism and poverty. Uh that explains why the US system is so weird. But the problem is um like Look, obviously racism hasn't gone away and neither has poverty, but racism is definitely better today than it was in 1960 or 1950. And racism has generally waned rather than increased. But if you were to kind of graph it out, like the crappiness of the and the harshness and violence of the U.S. criminal justice system has been going up fairly dramatically and racism is going down. So you're going in different directions. Similarly, like you can say, what about conservatives? They're like, ah, it's just because there was crime and the breakdown of family. But the problem is, those trends don't go that way either. Crime got worse than better. The breakdown of family got worse and then got better, but the system becomes ever more punitive and harsh. And libertarians say, uh, it's all the drug war. And if the drug war had never happened, this would like this U S system wouldn't be so bad, but there's reasons to doubt that too, including things like a lot of drug arrests are actually proxies for violent crime. Um, they're just arresting them on something and, and they're arresting people and trying them and convicting them on things that are easier to, to prove than certain kinds of violent crime. So, uh, it, it's exaggerated. So we think fundamentally what makes the U S different is, the unfortunate problems about federalism, about the way things are funded, about who votes for what, creates a kind of perfect storm of bad incentives where uh, communities might choose to do uh, some kind of policing over others or choose to substitute incarceration for policing because they can externalize the cost onto others or the way that money is collected through fines and so on are unusual in the U.S. and, and not the same as elsewhere or weird perverse incentives from federal funding or uh, just just there's a whole host of these things and together they add up to and, – and these and these things are absent in other countries and together they add up to – Every player in this system has a perverse incentive to act and do the wrong thing. Yeah, and I think this is really important to highlight. There's a line in our book where we say that if you imagine we wake up tomorrow and everyone was the same shade of tan, you would probably see the same number of people in our jails and prisons because of how much money is being made off of it. You know, it's not that there aren't racist judges and racist cops and racist laws, and, and there are, and it's a real problem. Um, but you have so many people who are profiting off of the criminal justice system right now is that it, the issue isn't necessarily that people are being locked up because they're black. They're being locked up in many cases because they're poor. And it just so happens in our country right now that being black is often a proxy for being poor. And so if you're going to pick on someone because you want to put them in jail for a couple of days, you know, the easiest thing to do in many cities is to pick on a black person because it's likely that they don't have money. It's likely they don't have political capital. It's just easy. Um, now, policing and, and doing that would be a bit more difficult in situations where everyone with the same shade of tan. But You've got so much money tied up in the system and you have so many people's livelihoods that are tied into it that it's going to be very difficult to undo some of this stuff. And this was one of the challenges that we were really grappling with when we tried to figure out what are some reasonable solutions to the problems that we're facing. But it's not just you we talked about profits. There's obviously a lot of money, but there, there are other ways of profiting too from the system in sort of the straight up economic sense that, that politicians can profit by, say, getting elected. 
Yeah, of course. And and how we count people, too, when it comes to voting and representation works as well. And so one of the things that that we could do very easily when you look at, say, a census and how you count people in terms of districts is you start counting people not where they're in prison. Right. So right now you count people where they're in prison. Right. You count them from where they're from. And there are all sorts of ways. You're absolutely right that that people benefit and people profit, not just in financial sense, but but that's the same type of profiting, right? You have a lot of people with a lot to lose when you look at changing some of the aspects of our current system. If a lot of this is explained by financial incentives, I'm curious how that fits in with two of the particular areas people today seem to be focusing on as far as rectifying especially police brutality, and that's qualified immunity, namely the protections police officers have from being sued for violating the rights of citizens, and police unions, which protect one of the things they do is protect bad officers from the consequences of their badness. Um, That suing individual officers has clearly a financial cost, but it's not necessarily a cost that's borne by the department. Like You could sue the individual. And the police unions protecting individual officers there's not there's not a clear like people profiting off of individual bad police because you can always replace them with a with a new good police officer so are these do police unions and qualified immunity fit into the financial incentive story or are they separate from it you know we d- we didn't talk at great length about qualified immunity in the book um in part because we aren't only talking about police violence we're talking about incarceration levels the pre pre incarceration like pre-trial detention and like fines and things like that um and it's puzzling there's a whole legal history here about why that arose and so on and i don't know if i would try to say that the doctrine of qualified immunity arose because of financial incentives on the other hand um when you think about police unions a good analogy here would be for like they'll be probably familiar to your listeners is how teachers unions work in the united states Right. So teachers have a financial incentive. As a teacher, you might think, well, the teachers unions aren't particularly good for me. I'm putting money into the system. What do they do? But they create a lack of competition. They immunize you from certain kinds of harms. You get to keep your job, even if you do a bad job and so on. And you have an interest in having a system like that that protects you from the downsides of your own behavior. So then it it starts to turn into a concentrated benefits, diffuse cost kind of problem. Um, Individual police members might have a strong incentive to pay into this into a police union, which in turn lobbies very vigorously um, in a variety of mechanisms. When I say lobbying, I don't just mean lobbying for policy changes, but the way that they might shame politicians publicly and do other kinds of things. They lobby hard to like protect their members. And because they have such a strong interest in protecting their members, they put tremendous amounts of efforts here. The benefits are concentrated. The rest of us, it would be kind of like a public good, a diffused public good for us to kind of lobby against them. And since the benefits are here are really low and the costs are diffused, we don't. So I think you have a concentrated benefits diffused cost here. If you just think of it, story here, if you just think of the police union as being like any other special interest group. And as you said, uh, the the book is about, even though right now we're having a conversation about police violence in particular, uh, the book is about more than that because Although we have a problem with police in this country, it's it's fair to say that the criminal justice system is quite broken from kind of top to bottom. One of those aspects of, of that is broken that you guys write about in the book is is what has been termed overcriminalization. But you guys have sort of a specific way that you think about, you know, how did we get to overcriminalization? Because you know, there's only ten commandments, right? Like they, the, the the I guess there's a lot of Jewish laws. There's a lot more things that Jews are supposed to do, but there's in terms of criminal law, there's only ten commandments, and and you you can sort of name the crimes that exist. Uh, they're fairly seem to be fairly simple, but we have way more than that that's punished criminally. Yeah, and it's a puzzling issue, uh, like what should be criminalized and what should not be. So we have a whole chapter on like, well, what should be a crime? Uh, and so one of the reasons we talk about that is that part of the problem is if you if you want to think about what should be criminalized, you have to think about the competence and character of the people that will be in charge of enforcing that, right? So this is something that like libertarian-minded people say all the time. You know, may, many people who are libertarian-minded might not be very libertarian-minded if governments were invariably competent and moral and always did the right thing the right way for the right reason. They might be like, oh yeah, I'd want a more expansive government. 
So one thing we say is that when you want something criminalized, you we have like a, a sort of a checklist of things to think about. Should this be criminalized or not? And one of them is, will it be enforced in a good way, in a competent and fair way? Uh, will the costs of the enforcement actually be worth it? Or it might be the kind of thing where the cost actually um, – exceed the benefits of criminalizing what even just from a purely utilitarian standpoint you'd be surprised at how few things do we ask people to think about the question of uh how will people will this criminalization actually work because many times when you criminalize something you just make that problem worse rather than better so a good example would be the drug war uh it's pretty clear that the drug war makes the drug makes the drug problem worse rather than better uh i think that's familiar to most people here we don't have to get into the argument um, you have to ask, is it worth the price that you pay? And you also have to just recognize that not everything that's part of morality should be part of law. You know, like if I call my mom right now while we're on this and say, hey, mom, just for the hell of it to prove a point, I'm never going to talk to you again. And um, I'm not going to let you see your ki- your grandkids until they're 18 and they're like out of my power. That would be really deeply immoral for me to do. But there are reasons why we don't make it punishable by law as opposed to like if I go up and like punch you in the face a couple times. Maybe that's actually significantly less harmful, but we do criminalize that. So you have to think about there's only going to be a specific subset of harms that we put on other people that really should be subject to criminal judgment. We don't want to use the law as our way of saying what is good and bad and to pass moral judgment on everything. And once you kind of go through the checklist and look at specific examples, this I think chips away at a lot of things that should be criminalized. So we don't want to say necessarily that, you know, it, it, it means like only victim crimes with victims, but that's pretty close to the story. And that's not even, that's maybe a necessary condition, but not even sufficient. Yeah. And, and to add to that, even if an action has a victim, it, it doesn't mean necessarily that it has to be pursued through, through criminal means, right? So we talk a lot about how you can pursue a lot of harms, you know, through, through civil means. And so there are other ways to look at this besides sending the police after folks. And I think one of the challenges that we have to remember is that it's it's not just what's criminalized, but the reasons why those are those things are criminalized and then how they're prosecuted and how they're pursued. And so all across history of the U.S., you see laws that are put into place that are not equally enforced. And so this is another problem as well. And so this is it, it's a it's a bigger picture than just, you know, what are the police doing? What are the laws doing? Because a lot of times what you see on the books isn't exactly how things work out in practice. Now, in terms of the incentive structure here, we you do we do we did hear back. What was it? What? 2014, I believe, when the Ferguson uprising happened, uh, where we saw the use of criminal laws for the purpose of basically taking profits in through a bunch of petty fines and petty, you know, ordinances about hedgerows and things like this and those being used. But we also see that that, that's one way that we could see incentives to have more of these laws. Uh, We see all over the place that there could be some incentive structure to put more people in prison and to have more laws that sort of charge people or fine them. Yeah, look, let me talk with you about some interesting incentives. And there are all sorts of incentives related to prisons. But but let me get off of prisons just for a second, because I think this is a discussion that goes beyond prisons. One of the most egregious examples I've seen relates to bail and comes from New Orleans. So the the magistrate court, so everyone who gets arrested has to go through the magistrate court where they give the person, they, they decide either they're going to release them on ro- their own recognizance or they're going to require them to pay some sort of bail in order to get them released. The rules of the magistrate court allow the magistrate court to take a portion of the bail bond fees in order to run the courts. And so when someone has to pay, say, a thousand dollars in in bail to get released, they can go to a bail bondsman and have that person come up with five percent. So they pay five percent to the bail bondsman. So they pay the bail bondsman fifty dollars. The bail bondsman puts up the thousand dollars, or at least guarantees the thousand dollars, and they're able to leave. The problem is that the magistrate court gets a percentage of that fifty dollar fee. And so one of the things that we were seeing in New Orleans is that the option of paying cash was eliminated. And they also reduced the number of ROR's that you would get. So what you would have is you would have the magistrate judge coming in and saying, look, you have to, we're going to assign you a cash bail. 
And not just where you can put up the cash, but you need to actually pay the bail bondsman a fee because in the background, what we realized is they needed the fees to run the court. And so you see all of these perverse incentives that are set up to put a lot of the things that we see in place right now. And, you know, we may say you hear the story and say, this is horrible. And I think one of the things that I think I hopefully comes out of the book is that it's not so much that the magistrate judge who just so happens to be the father-in-law of our current mayor, right? It's not so much that the current magistrate judge is a horrible person. He needs money to run his court. And if you've been down to the magistrate court, you know the thing's falling apart. You know they're understaffed. And he's got to generate the money from somewhere. So it's not that he's a bad person, but rather, rather that we've created an incentive structure that when you look at how it gets followed... You see a disproportionate impact on people who are poor, on people who are already marginalized. And those are the types of stories to me that are really more troubling than just say, well, look, let's put a lot of people in prison because, you know, we need to keep the beds filled. I mean, those are bad too, but it's all across the system and it's in places that you wouldn't normally expect. This raises something I've, I've wondered about as far as criminal justice reform goes. And, and it's maybe something, fingers crossed, that's changing a bit. But it seems like a lot of you say there's these there's these horrible stories of people being abused in the system, taken advantage of in the system, that the system is milking them for cash in ways that ought to horrify us. But getting traction with that, it feels like is often really hard because so many Americans are like, well, you know, if you hadn't done anything wrong, you wouldn't be in this system in the first place. If you had just lived a good life, you wouldn't be tangled up with the courts. And so I don't really care. These are people who are who live a distance away from me, live in neighborhoods I don't go into, in in the cities that I find to be, you know, I mean, a lot of a lot of the right thinks of the cities as kind of these centers of nothing but Marxism and carnage. And so what do I care about what happens there? And so they can listen to the stories you're telling. And even if they believe them, they say, well, you know, that doesn't seem like really a problem to me. Like, of course, these people should have their money taken away because they must have done something wrong. So is there is there a way to move in a direction of reform in a society that seems to have that view of the only people who end up in the criminal justice system are bad people anyway? I mean – you're right that we don't have like an easy answer for that where you can say if you could just tell them this one thing, they'll suddenly care. But we do try to motivate them to some degree by appealing to their self-interest um, and also their sense of fairness in certain aspects. So one thing is that, yeah, you know, we are milking the poor with our entire cities like Cleveland Heights. Maybe it's changed in the past 10 years, but Cleveland Heights for a long time, their model was on Mayfield Road, we're going to change the uh, speed limit like every 100 feet, like from 35 to 25, and then constantly pull people over and get money from them in order to pay for our uh, financial, like our municipal costs. And lots of cities do even more horrifying versions of that. But uh one thing is that like you're paying for all this it's expensive and a lot of the things we're seeing have to do with you know municipalities realize if we put more cops on the street that'll reduce crime but if we just try to push hard for people being in prison for longer that won't reduce crime as much in fact it might even exacerbate it in certain ways but uh we can shift the cost onto state taxpayers rather than local taxpayers so everyone's passing the buck to somebody else and you the reader and the listener you're paying for that when you pay your taxes, like you're paying for ineffective and contrary to like evidence policing and and incarceration strategies. Another thing is just you, the person who's listening to this right now, you are a criminal. You just haven't gone to jail. Uh, We went through a number of different um, books and things. I've tried to measure the degree of criminality of the average American. And it's, it turns out that part of the problem is there's just so many laws on the books, so many regulations, so many laws that are open-ended that, uh, like one estimate says that 90% of Americans have done something that is would justify, according to the law, putting them in jail, convicting them of a felony and putting them in jail for one year. Right. So there you've heard, might've heard like the three felonies a day book, and that's probably exaggerating its case, but you know, saying like 90% of us have done something that is a felony and could put us in jail for a year. And the only reason we're not going to jail is because we're the right kinds of people. And it's, 
it's a certain degree of like government caprice that they're not coming after us. And my colleague at Georgetown, John Hasness, who writes on corporate law, he says that when it comes to corporate criminal law, this is done on purpose. The government actually wants it to be the case that any corporation at any time can be uh, prosecuted and you know milked for various financial fines. That's done on purpose. But there's something like that that's happening to all of us. We're all a bunch of criminals. Um, and finally, like if you just care about crime, it's like, look – Giving you, you have a person who does something that they shouldn't have done, and then you give them a ma- massive financial fee, and you or and or you stick them in uh, jail for a short amount of time while they wait trial. At that point, you've probably made that person lose their job. Their kids like can't get fed anymore. They're now going to go on some sort of like the kids are going to go on like a government welfare program that you're going to pay for. The guy's going to lose his job, and he's going to like lose his family. He'll get divorced. You've ruined his life. And now you're going to put him in a summer camp. I mean, it's a bad way to put it, but you're going to put him in camp with a bunch of other criminals who will teach him how to be a harder criminal. You'll like mess up his psychology and make it really difficult for him to reintegrate into society. You've just created a massive problem and you get to pay for part of that. So I think even from a selfish standpoint, you should care a lot about this. Yeah, and there there are also some other issues here, too. When you start talking with public defenders and when you start talking with attorneys and judges, you know, you realize very quickly that there are two sets of laws in this country. You have one set of laws generally for people who don't have a lot of political capital or who don't have financial resources. And then you have another set of laws for the people who who do. Right. And so I think when you look at a lot of the milking, uh, what Jason said is right, that it, it's it's who's being milked and when. Right. So you look at a lot of speed traps. So we we tell the story of a number of cities. My favorites down in Waldo, Florida, 95 percent of their municipal budget came from a speed trap. Right. It was always people outside of Waldo that were getting caught. And, and it's the same thing, too, when you look at, say, who's getting picked up for, for drug possession or who's getting picked up for, for certain crimes in New Orleans, is that it's not necessarily people from outside of the city, but it's people in the city who have no political capital, who have no money, right? Who, who's, like, those are the people being targeted. You know, you come down and you smoke pot in New Orleans. Well, fortunately, it doesn't matter who you are. Smoking pot in New Orleans, you're not going to get picked up. But five years ago, right, you come down, you smoke pot in New Orleans on the street, None, none of us are going to get picked up. We're all a bunch of white guys, but but that's not the case for everyone. So so part of it that's that's the issue too is is who's getting harassed, who's getting picked up, who's getting prosecuted, when and how. Do we even need police? I mean, in the radical libertarian sense, but people like Bruce Benson have written about this, and I ask I ask people to think about what police are actually giving them, uh, at least as they are currently, as they currently are. Because if you, if, if you want to get something, if you have your car stolen or your bike stolen or something, most people would probably maybe not even report that to the police because they know that the police would not take any time solving such a sort of silly problem that they're going to be doing something else. So you, you take you, you protect your own self. You put locks on your bike and you put, you put a security system on your car and you put bars on your window and alarm system. So you've actually just basically taken the the protect part out of the police there for most of the things. And they're off raiding people's homes and not actually protecting you in any meaningful way. So, I mean, like in that sense, you know, how much do we actually need police uh, or, is there a way, I guess the secondary question is, is there a way to like change this, this nature of police behavior to actually protecting and serving as the motto goes? Yeah, I mean, look, I think one of the things that's, that's clear is that police presence and having police reduces crime. That, that is clear. Um, now, how the police could function and how it could be different from, say, they're functioning now, you know, one of the ideas that Jason and I were kicking around for a while is imagine if the police in the city were kind of uh, they kind of operated like the fire department, right? You don't see the fire trucks driving around the city, making sure there's just nothing on fire, right? They wait until they're called. And just like I'm not going to call the fire department if there's a small grease fire in my kitchen, likely people aren't going to call the police unless there's something really serious. So I don't buy into the idea that we don't need any police. I think that's that's a bit much, not only looking at the data, but just looking at how people operate and want to operate. But there's no reason that people on on a regular that police on a regular basis need to be driving around pulling people over and and doing that sort of stuff. So I think we need to look at say how policing is done, um, the interaction or the relationship between the police and the community. But I, I'm not sure I'm I'm a believer in just to say well look let's just let's just get rid of them entirely. 
One of the really striking things in the horrific George Floyd video is it's not just that you have a cop kneeling on a man's neck for nine minutes until he's dead, but that you have three other police standing around doing nothing about it. That at any moment, any one of them could have pulled the guy off of Floyd's neck. And that seems to be one of the central problems in the American criminal justice system and American policing is we always hear it's just a few bad apples. Like, and, and I know there's statistics about, you know, the, the complaints about excessive force and brutality are, are overwhelmingly concentrated among a few cops on the force. It's not that all cops are engaging in this stuff, but it does seem like all cops or most cops don't do much about it. They aren't constantly calling for their brutal colleagues to be fired. They aren't turning them in. They aren't recording them in the act or they're standing by and watching them murder someone. Why does that happen so much in American policing? Why does it seem so difficult to get good cops to do something about bad cops? Um, you know, I, I was just rereading a book by Miller on uh, man, called Managerial Dilemmas, and it's a uh, book about the economics and psychology of large like businesses. And there's a similar kind of problem there, and a similar kind of problem with like really any organization. People. Like, you know, so like Marxists think things like a business is going to fire you as soon as like you turn out to be like uh, not worth your paycheck because that's all they care about is profit. But on the contrary, what they find is that actually they're pretty loath to fire people and they keep them around way longer than they should. And part of it has to do with just people want to be liked. They think of themselves as part of a team. Humans are very groupish. We have an us versus them mentality. Um when you're in a traumatic situation with other people, which police officers often are, you start to see you as part of one team and everyone else as part of the other team. And so people naturally support each other in pretty horrific things. And this is an almost universal phenomenon. The problem is that the kind of hor horrific things that happen with police officers are going to be much more dramatic on average than like what happens with college professors. I mean, college professors also like, you know, support each other doing garbage and awful stuff, but it just is usually much more light beer. So that's part of it. Uh, but there's other stuff too. Like in the U.S., uh, there have been weird. You, you've heard this on the news, but there is a kind of weird training towards being warrior cops, where military tactics were create like tactics that were created by the military for um, asserting dominance in like a city. These tactics were then taught to police officers, and it comes with a certain way of thinking about seeing people as enemies and assuming that. Um, they might kill you at any second and thinking that it's more important to protect your own life than to protect the life of the people that you're um, suppressing. So this stuff started to spread and part of it did spread. This is where libertarians get some stuff right. A lot of this spread because of the drug war. Um, there was a weird financial incentives to start using SWAT teams and SWAT techniques to using military um, style weaponry and tanks and so on that started really around the 1980s. Like, you know, so a good number would be in the year 1981 uh, SWAT teams were called uh, about 3000 times in the entire, like over the course of the entire year in the country. Now they're call called about 80,000 times per year, roughly, you know, like at least a hundred times happened today and mostly to, for really minor things like serving drug warrants. And 1981 was a way more violent year than, than now. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. 1981 was when they were treating New York city as like a dystopian hellish landscape, uh, which it is again today, but you know, a week ago was not. Um, so like, yeah. So there's there's like a kind of training that reinforces what's already a pretty horrible human tendency, which is like we protect our own and we don't care about others. And then you add to that a kind of training towards a militaristic occupational techniques and uh, treating everyone as a hostile, an enemy combatant, and that increases it. So yeah, I think the combination of those things explains a lot of it. And finally, you know, there's a bit that's been going around with like uh, Chris Rock lately where he says, yeah, yeah, a few bad apples, but hey, guess what? There's certain jobs where you don't get to have any bad apples. Like airline, airline pilots is one of them. You can't have a couple airline pilots who are just like, I just don't like landing. I prefer to crash. Like, no, you don't get to have any airline pilots that prefer crashing. And similarly to the police, you shouldn't keep people on the force who are routinely abusive, but they do, or they shuffle them around. If you think about like the Catholic Church shuffling around child abusers, uh, it's very similar to what happens in police forces. People get shuffled around. They get moved to a different district. They might get sort of almost like traded with like a recommendation to maybe go work in another city. 
You know, like I don't really want this guy in my force anymore, but I'll write him a recommendation letter and he'll go work in like another town and then he'll be happy to leave and I get rid of him. There's a lot of that kind of thing going along too. It's very, it's, it's generally speaking, very difficult to get rid of bad police officers. And part of the reason, by the way, we should say is because we suck, not just the system, but us, we human beings, many prosecutors, we, we read a number of books and papers about why don't prosecutors go after the police? Well, partly it's because it's their friends, they're in cahoots with them, they're in this, they're working in the same system. But part of the reason is because they think it never works. Juries are very unwilling to find police officers accountable for crime, even when it's just blatant. I want to get into some of the reforms that you guys propose. And one of the ones that, that maybe actually, Jay, what you just said is relevant to that, that really sticks out is uh, no government prosecutors, period, uh, that that you would just not even have government prosecutors. Well, what would you have instead and what would that change? Yeah, one possibility would be – so right now we have the problem where – the pro- think about how the system is stacked against you. It's the prosecutors, the people who collect evidence, the police. The whole thing is run by the government. Right. And so we can talk about separation of powers, but there is not separation of powers when we're talking about this sort of stuff. So what if instead it was just um, the government would pay people uh, like private lawyers to be both prosecutors and defendants at any given time? Like if you're a, a lawyer or something that maybe you owe a few hours a year towards this, maybe maybe have people who make themselves available and you kind of get picked at random um, to be either the prosecutor or to be the defend, defending uh defense attorney, but you don't have people who are professional prosecutors. Because as we talk about in the book, professional prosecutors face a lot of perverse incentives, which cause them to try too many people to go for high profile things to over-criminalize and so on. Um, another possibility might be like you have, you have like right now we have a sort of thing going on where there's like, you know, the public defense attorneys that are paid for by the state for people who can't afford their own counsel and the public prosecutors and the amount of money and resources that goes to prosecution is enormous. And the amount of money and resources that goes to public defenders is basically nothing, right? So what if you had a system where they're just all in one group and even if they're government attorneys, you can get picked at any time to be a prosecutor or a defender. And now if you're trying to be one of these people who's trying to advance your career based upon your success rate and so on, at least you have a somewhat of a stronger incentive to, uh, uh, to, be a, to do a good job as a defender as well. This is the first time I've heard this specific proposal when I was reading your book. And I mean, it would be it would be shocking how much that would change so much. So it's a, it's a pretty interesting proposal. Chris, did you have anything to add? Uh, I mean, look, it would be, it would be easy enough to do it, at least in theory. Um, you know, I think in practice, it ends up being tougher. Um, but when you look at the resource disparity, it's, it's really significant. Uh, and, and that's, that's, that's the problem here, right? I mean, you just got to figure out ways that you're not going to make the people respond to different, um, to, you know, people are going to respond to the incentives they're going to respond to. And we know what type of incentives people respond to, and we know how they respond to those incentives. And so we think the best way to move forward is to say, look, we're not going to change human nature. We're not going to change how people respond to the incentives. So why don't we use those incentives in our favor? How do we create a system that allows people to respond to the things that we know they're going to respond to and the way they're going to respond to them and sort of use that to serve the interests of justice instead of what's going on right now? The NYPD has 55,000 employees, according to Wikipedia just now. And a lot of these big cities have thousands of police officers operating out of a single department with a single chief. Is that part of the problem? Would we be better off if we broke up police departments more, made them smaller so there was you know, fewer, I guess, Hayekian knowledge problems, but also it might lead to more local policing that people, you know, get to know their district more? I mean, is it just have we run into a problem where a lot of police departments are so big that it's hard to make any meaningful change or they're so big that bad actors and bad actions can kind of disappear into the cracks? I'm not sure the problem is that they're necessarily too big, but I do think there's a problem when you look at who's doing the policing. Um, If you can get people from the community to police their own community – you're going to be in a much better position than if you're getting people from the outside coming in and seeing this as a job. And so the challenge is going to be how, how do you do that? 
right? How do you create a system such that the people are from the community want to be the police in their community? Uh, and I think that's going to require a very different approach to policing. And and you're right. I mean, look, maybe maybe in a large city, you know, it gets to be be quite big. But but look at it from the standpoint of universities, right? So Jason and I are at a university. You have all sorts of colleges and universities of all different sizes. And there's no one right now who's saying that look, Arizona State can't function because it's just simply too big. In fact, Arizona State is functioning much better than a lot of small colleges right now. And so I don't think the problem is necessarily, you know, that some of the police departments are too big. But I think the bigger problem is how they're being run and who's doing the policing in some of these communities. So if we're looking at this sort of problem, it's interesting. You you address it on multiple levels in the book. And and as we said, the police right now are the big story, but it's they're not the only story. So we start, you know, we start with too many criminal laws uh, and then enforced by police with bad incentives and then put into prisons and cages that also have bad incentives. And that's another thing where you uh, have some interesting proposals. One of them is competitive prisons. Uh, what would what would they be competing on? Yeah, I, I often use this as a thought experiment in class um, where I talk to students about, hey, public prisons stink, private prisons stink. Is there something we could do to change how private prisons are paid for that would make conditions better? And I give them a little bit and they always come up with the same thing. Um, they think about what if there were a prison voucher system? So instead of it right now, like you get, let's say we decide you have to go to prison, which Chris and I think should be used very sparingly in only very special circumstances. But you have to go to prison. Uh, so what happens is you get, say, a $12,000 voucher or whatever it might be. And now all the various private prison companies have to compete to get you to go there. So once a year, you get to pick which prison you go to. Maybe there's some regulations and stuff like that. But uh, they, you have to go to a certain kind of security level prison. And you say, well, you know, prison... Prison A wants all my money, so they're going to say, you have $12,000, we'll give you a mat to sleep on and one bologna sandwich per day. And Prison B also wants my money, so they're like, well, we'll give you a mat and a pillow and two bologna sandwiches. And now Prison A is like, well, we'll give you a bed and three bologna sandwiches. And you get into a bidding war. And the more competitive the market is, the more they have to bid. So now they're going to start offering you things like um, better and higher quality amenities, protection, safety, um, maybe like services to prevent re recidivism and to try to make sure you actually get rehabilitated all because they want your money, not because they like you, not because they're good people, but because they want your money and what it takes to get your money is to actually offer in a sense, a good prison product. And I've sometimes talked about this with the public and their reaction is, Oh, I'm worried that your new proposal would actually make prisons too nice. Like they wouldn't be brutal and nasty enough and people wouldn't suffer enough. You could also do things like you could say, allow them to keep some of the money. We say like, look, you get $12,000 a year. And if you don't spend all $12,000 on your prison, then you get to keep say half of what you don't spend and put it in a bank account. And when you leave, you get to keep it. And that's the money to get you back on your feet once you've sort of served your time. Right. So introduce competition. But right now, like when people think about privatization, it's really just like the problem with privatization is that the customer is the government and the government wants to save money. And so profiting when you're profiting off of one customer, the person who gets screwed is the prisoner. And this is the problem with all nonprofits when like the person who pays and the person who gets the service are different. So in this uh, in this crazy world that, that's happening right now, uh, it, I mean, it seems like you guys have outlined a system that is sort of, as we mentioned earlier, like just sort of fundamentally broken from top to bottom. Um, but is there, I mean, is there a place, do you see something as sort of the most easy first step, especially right now, that there's something we can do uh, is, it, is, it, is the most practical and maybe popular given what's happening first step that we can start moving and then just start slowly trying to get the incentives aligned because there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Yeah, ab absolutely. And and this is going to be one of the benefits, I hope, that comes out of this COVID-19 situation. Because, I mean, I guess people forget that we're still going through a pandemic right now, uh, you know, through all the protests and everything else. But one of the things that a lot of municipalities were doing was letting people out of prison to stop the spread of COVID-19 because they were worried about, you know, it spreading in the prison and it being uncontrolled and everything else. And I think we're going to see and we're going to get a great amount of data on how many of these people that they let out don't reoffend. And so under normal circumstances, it would have been impossible 
to push through um, regulations or otherwise allow people or allow the governors or allow some of these uh, you know, sheriffs to let these people out of prison. But we've been given a wonderful opportunity to see what happens. And, and I think what you're going to see is you're going to see that the sheriffs and the people who are running these prisons are able to, in almost all cases, identify people who now pose no danger to the community. I think you're going to see an absurdly low recidivism rate from the people who were let out of prison because of COVID-19. And so one of the things that I hope happens from this is people start thinking, well, wait a second. If all of these people got out and none of them reoffended, why are we paying all of this money to keep these people in prison? Aren't there alternatives, right? Even if we think someone's done something wrong and should be punished and that that punishment should extend over a significant period of time, is it really appropriate for us to be spending tax dollars to keep this person in a cage when they pose no physical danger to other people in the community? And I'm hoping that the answer to that question is no, and we can start having an intelligent discussion about alternatives. But without the without the coronavirus, right, without this opportunity to let all these folks out of prison... I don't see how you can have that discussion. I mean, you start looking at at states like Louisiana, where, where sort of um, progressive governors come in and they start trying to let people out of prison early. And so our governor did this. And so he found a bunch of people who had been in prison on average seven and a half years and who were set to be released in, in within the next six months. And they released a bunch of people just to see if they could identify who the people were who were less likely to, to reoffend. 98.5% success rate. It's extraordinarily good. Yet when you start looking at the headlines of the newspapers, right, it's like eight violent criminals were let out into our society. And so I think this is the problem. I think we're going to see a lot of good data. And it's going to be given us, it's given us an opportunity to try some, um, some things that we couldn't have tried otherwise. But the challenge is going to be how do we frame the results, which will almost certainly be positive in ways that allow progress to take place. And I think that's going to be one of the challenges coming out of this, even though it's a great opportunity. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.